Welcome, you are listening to Stoic Conversations, a discussion between myself, Caleb Ontiveros, and Michael Tremblay about the theory and practice of Stoicism. We discuss what we've learned about building resilience and developing virtue through our philosophical studies. We're not sages, so we'll also touch on how we are or have approached obstacles in our own lives with the hope that hearing these stories will be useful to others. Welcome. My name's Caleb. Yeah, woohoo. My name's Michael. Hi, everybody. So today we're going to talk about stoicism and emotions. Do you want to kick us off? Yeah, sure. So excited to talk about this topic. I think it's a really important topic, an interesting one. And I think a lot of people get into stoicism because they're interested in regulating their emotional life. They're inter or more importantly, there's something wrong with their emotional life. Like you think people get into fitness because they want to be fitter. They want to either look a different way or be able to do something differently. And people typically are attracted to stoicism because they want to, they want to respond to situations differently, whether that's excessive anger, excessive kind of fear or anxiety or poor emotional regulation or things like this. People tend to say the emotional part of my life is one that I want to improve. It's one that I want to work on. And they see stoicism as a way to do that. It was that way for myself too. One of the things that attracted it to me is I saw a good emotional life as being a really important part of a good life. And I saw stoicism as a way to help with that. But stoicism and emotions is really complicated. Maybe not really. There's certainly more complicated parts of the philosophy, but it's not as simple as just yeah. don't worry about it or don't care about the things outside of your control. That, that's a part of it, but that's a kind of surface level part of it. And the theory is, I think, more robust. And when you understand it in a more robust way, it's more helpful. It's more, it can respond to more situations. So I really wanted to dig into this and jump into it. Yeah, let's go for it. What do you got? Yeah, sweet. So um, first thing I want to start with is just the cognitive view of emotions. So when we're thinking about stoicism, when you say, where do we start with stoicism and emotions? Where do we start with, again, anger, fear, love, grief, these core things? I think that cognitive view of emotions is the first thing you need to understand when you're thinking about stoicism and emotions. And the cognitive view of emotions yeah. in its simplest form is the view that cognition or the thoughts, the judgments that we make are really causally linked with emotions or if not the emotions themselves. And so the stoic view is that emotions and the feelings that we associate with them are just value judgments. So an example of this, I was thinking of this example, either the World Cup's on right now. So you have something like a soccer game. You have one specific situation, right? So you have the outcome of the soccer game. I'm Canadian. Canada just lost to Belgium, one nothing. So this is a single event. And if you're a Canadian and you really care about soccer and you observe this event, you go, Canada lost, you get really upset. You get really maybe angry, maybe just sad about it. If you're from Belgium and you observe the event, you get really happy. And if you're someone who doesn't really care about soccer at all, you feel nothing. And so the, the, the stoicism makes this really interesting insight even 2,000 years ago that, look, the same event can produce a different response in three different people, a positive emotion, a negative emotion, and indifference. And the difference there is not the event. The difference there is the way that we perceive mm -hmm. the event, the way that it matches with our values or, or whether or not it corresponds to what we want to have happened. So whether or not we think it's a good thing or we think it's a bad thing or we don't care about it at all. And so that's the cognitive view of emotion is that when you're making a kind of a value judgment about the situation, you're saying, 
Canada losing is a bad thing or Belgium winning is a good thing. It's that value judgment that is the emotion. It's that value judgment that corresponds with the feelings we associate with happiness or grief. If you haven't thought much about emotions, is a really interesting insight and really a change in perspective. Because I know for someone like me, I had this view for a long time that emotions were kind of things that happen to you, things that you experience, things that you handle emotions. I looked at this view of anger as just something that happens and you handle, hang, handle anger well mm -hmm. by adjusting to it, by riding the wave correctly, so to speak. But it wasn't something that you had a part in use. And so the cognitive emotion, cognitive view of emotion right. flips that and say, look, your judgment is what's producing that. Yeah, that's, that's it in a nutshell. What are your thoughts? Gil? This, of course, brings up the common stoic line that it's not things in themselves that harm us, but our opinion of them. And I think common view of emotions is that they are almost like physical sensations in the sense that they arise whether or not we think about them in a specific way. But how we think about the world shapes how we experience it. And this is one of the most solid and useful Stoic ideas, certainly. Yeah, and as I said, like, yeah, that sensation, like something like hunger or something like tiredness, it's the thing that is connected to this animal part of you, right? It's this thing that, I don't know, this kind of lower part of you and maybe this because there's this stereotype of the cold, rational person, right? And that rational person is not emotional. And then you have the kind of emotional, you think of like a child and the child is, they're not intelligent, they're not cognitively developed, but they're being pulled around by their feelings. But the, the self-view is, is to say, look, like this is a false dichotomy or this is the false way of dividing it. And the child is mm -hmm. in a sense, children are not as, they're still growing up, right? So they're still developing mentally. The kid is still getting upset over the things that they value, right? They're still getting upset. They're like, I, they want free time or they want to do what they want to do, or they want a treat and they can't have it, or you're making them go to bed when they don't want to go to bed. And it's still these kind of judgments that are producing these responses. They're not just, again, as you were pointing out, they're not just things that occur. And it's a really a paradigm shift when I started thinking about it. And it had a huge impact in, on my thinking. But I think sometimes, like sometimes when I read about stoicism or I, I go on Reddit or the internet, I can still see people looking at stoicism as this thing of accept what's not up to you and your emotions are not up to you. So you just need to ride them out or you can not judge the situation. And I think that it's, you don't want to add a negative emotion onto a negative emotion. So if you're being angry or you're getting upset, and the thing I always say, you don't want to be upset about being upset. You don't want to like really judge yourself in the moment, but you do mm -hmm. want to take responsibility and you do want to take accountability for those feelings. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting and really important part of, of it. And as you said, it connects back to Epictetus really well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You always want to break negative cycles whenever you can. And part of that is thinking better. That's the, the central upshot of the cognitive model of emotion, both in stoicism, but it's also different forms of therapy. The other part that I was thinking about that I want to talk about. So you have this kind of first distinction, which is this idea that what you think determines how you feel, right? And if you think better, you can feel better. And that's the cognitive view of emotions. And that's really powerful. But another thing that I've been writing about or thinking about that I think stoicism teaches that's really important in the sphere is that's just a descriptive view, right? That's not telling you what to do with your or how to feel about them. That's just saying the kinds of things they are. And then I think Stoicism goes a step further and says, given this fact, 
the way that you should treat your emotions, the way that you should relate to them is as pieces of information about your thought processes and about the quality of your thought processes, not as, not as tools to be harnessed. And this is, a, I think, that's something that I see or something that I used to do. So I did a lot of sports. I do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu primarily. That's again my primary sport. And you have this view of I need to get in the right headspace or I need to get angry or I need to get motivated. And you're trying to like incite these feelings in yourself as like tools and as ways of motivating myself. And the problem with that is that if you see emotion as a tool, you'll start telling yourself lies. You'll start convincing yourself things. You'll start entering these kind of unhelpful thought processes or these incorrect false thought processes just to produce the feeling you want. The opposite end of this would be something like toxic positivity, which has come up, which is this people that are not willing to let in any sort of bad fact about the world into their consciousness. So they're not willing mm -hmm. to think about it or relate to it. Yeah. And that's this example of using these emotions as tools. So you're saying, look, I want to feel a certain way and I'm going to think what I have to think to feel that way. And I think Stoicism says like, you've got that all wrong, right? What you want to do is you want to think the right way. And when you think the right way, you will also happen to feel good, but you can't skip it. You can't flip the order like that, right? You got to really get the foundation of relating to situations, relating to things appropriately, maturely, thinking about things in the right way, not catastrophizing, not blowing things out of proportion, not ruminating and things like this. And if you're able to do that, then the proper feeling will come. And so instead you stop, when I started practicing stoicism, instead I stopped looking at these emotions as things to be harnessed to get a result I wanted. And I started looking at them as pieces of information, right? So while I'm feeling acutely stressed about a situation and I don't want to be stressed, I don't think perhaps the situation warrants me being stressed. So then I started thinking or started adopting this kind of stoic way of thinking. And I started going, why am I stressed? What am I, what, are, what do I value that I think is in jeopardy? Is it actually in jeopardy? Do I actually value it? I started using these kinds of questions. And that was really helpful because sometimes what happens you know, is like you think the emotion then is totally reasonable, even though it feels bad, sad. But when you interrogate, you go, this is a bad thing that happened. I should be sad. And you stop trying to make the feeling go away and you just ride it out. And that's that, that's a, that's the second kind of paradigm shift that I think comes from adopting this cognitive view of emotions and then saying, what does that tell us? Well, that tells us we should be looking at the way we feel as information about how we think, as a feedback process about how we think. So how do you think about the response that people often push, which is that sometimes particular feelings are just useful, whether it's in a sports context or whether it's in the boardroom, it can be useful to adopt almost, even if not explicitly false beliefs, beliefs that one isn't certain are true. Yeah, I think so. You can raise an example of somebody who's in like a terrible situation, like they're in, they've been kidnapped or something and they're just like, somebody's going to come save me. And it's this kind of, you don't really have evidence of that. And you think of the, right. the hyper-rational person be like, what's your proof of this? But it just, it's like a life raft, right? It's like a, it's like an incorrect belief. One, I would think, I'm interested in what you think, Caleb. I think in like life or death situations or these kind of extreme like situations where you will emotionally break. I think sometimes you can put on a piece of armor and be like, okay, this is not necessarily true, but you, you can believe it for now. And that serves a function. But I think those kinds of situations are really uncommon. And I think those would be really extreme situations. And 90% of the time, 95% of the time, you're doing yourself a disservice because you're not confronting the world as it is. 
and you're not learning to adapt or adjust around the world as it is with those facts in mind. That's what I would say. I would say, look, I'm not going to blame somebody who's been in a worse situation than me for adopting a belief that allows them to survive. But I don't think that applies. And I don't think that's healthy in, in, in situations beyond that. What, what do you think? Yeah. So another context might be sometimes people talk about an entrepreneur, entrepreneurship. It's uh, useful to have a sort of unreasonable belief in oneself, a nearly delusional uh, sort of belief that one will succeed or something of this sort. And I think one thing that one can say about that sort of thing is first, many entrepreneurs who have this sort of attitude initially might be paid off in the short term, but not in the long term. And that's one quick note to make. The more substantive issue, though, is I think one always needs to be careful and see like what are the actual beliefs that are held by the person. And in some cases, you might find that the person has a very strong sense of self-confidence, but their belief that their project will work is actually not so high. So I think there are, say, stories of Maybe you take someone like Jeff Bezos, who was asked by some initial investor about how successful, how likely he thought it would be that Amazon was successful. And he said, well, maybe 33% or something like that, <laughs> which, I mean, he's still someone who gives off a sense of confidence. But if you're able to hold perhaps an accurate belief about how likely you are to succeed, that actually tears apart from beliefs about your own ability or beliefs about how good you are at the task at hand. Yeah. So what I'm hearing from that is, can you achieve the result, which is this drive, this grit, the stick-to-itiveness, this, this effort, can you achieve that result with as few false beliefs as possible or as le less, least destructive false beliefs as possible? And yeah, so what comes to mind when you say that is something like a growth mindset, right? So maybe you have confidence or belief in yourself to succeed over time and that Man, that allows you to like really commit to things, but it doesn't involve a, a blindness, the market conditions of Amazon or the potential of its success, right? And I think that would be a better way of approaching it. I agree. So there's always another kind of fun philosophical argument here, which is that sometimes it's rational to be irrational. So in particular situations, say odd game theoretic type situation where you need to strap into a car and the other person is also going to strap into a car. And for some strange reason, you need to win some contest of nerves <laughs> of you two facing off against each other and the cars going towards one another. In that case, if you really need to win in this hypothetical experiment, it might be useful adopting some sort of false beliefs. I think this just connects. I think you're just getting back to ethics here, right? It's like the thing is like, what is the end goal? And if the end goal is to win this contest, then yeah, then to achieve that end goal, you're going to have to adopt whatever beliefs achieve, fulfill that goal. But the Stoic, I guess you just, everything's interconnected. You can't get away from that core Stoic proposition, which is that the good life is the rational life. The good life is the one where you live with knowledge, you accept the world as it is. And in that case, there's never going, I don't think there's really going to be a situation that on the hardline Stoic view, there's not going to be a situation that supersedes that. In the stoic position, mm -hmm. I think maybe those extreme situations I was bringing up, but this kind of rational position or this kind of game theory position you're talking about, of you're playing chicken, the two cars are driving at each other. What was the example? 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's it. That's the case. Yeah. I mean, and that it's, yeah, it would be rational if the end goal is to win that game. Then your irrationality becomes like a way to win the game. But that's, I guess, a bit too abstracted out from life, right? Or from, or... I think that it's an example of, just to give a more concrete example of that sort of thing is that it's an example of a principle that be to be taken seriously in one's commitments. Sometimes one should show that one will stick to those commitments even if maybe in that particular world, one is going to be made worse off. So the sort of thing one might do is just always refuse to negotiate with terrorists, even if there's some sense in which it might be rational to negotiate with them in, under circumstances, just mm-hmm. because in order to have that sort of character, having the character that you don't negotiate with them means that over the longer run, that you'll be less likely to fall for their schemes. But I think the point that you make about the ethical, always going back to the ethical questions of these sorts of things is useful. And to maybe become a little bit less abstract, the the question is what sort of game are you playing? And in that case, it's typically important to have the beliefs that are good rather than are instrumental to some other purpose. Yeah, I think that's right. If your game is to... If your game is to make as much money as possible, then there, there might be some sort of concept. We might have to actually look, you know, what entrepreneurs are more, make more money. Is it the really rational ones or is it the Jeff Bezos who are able to maintain a grip on their likelihood of success or not? But that's a different question from the stoic question. And I guess the first part is that even if you just want to make as much money as possible, or even if you just want to be successful, sometimes just taking that that Jeff Bezos approach that you mentioned, that approach on like finding a way to stay motivated while not diluting yourself, I think that should get more credit than it does because I think people tend to go far down that other side of the spectrum in entrepreneurship, but also in kind of art or anything that's really difficult. People tend to lean into that kind of distortion. But then so that's mm-hmm. one view, but then the other picture is that like, the game isn't to be as successful as possible, or the game isn't to win as much money as possible. The game is to live well. And under that view, there's much, much less pictures where lying to yourself or accepting, like thinking things that are false to feel a certain way. There's many less cases where that's good. Maybe some one other frame one can put on the sort of issue of emotions as information versus emotions as tools is that... In a way, treating emotions or feelings as information is more direct to your current aims. And you're not thinking about something like, how can I reduce all these feelings that feel bad? Instead, you're thinking about what do these feelings say about what I'm trying to do in this current situation, whether it's with some project or with your relationships. And it's those things that are out there that really matter, not so much your machinations with your interior feelings. Yeah, I haven't thought about it that way. That's a great point. So the idea being that what does it matter how you're feeling? You're getting focused on yourself. What matters is how you're relating to the world around you. So don't get caught up in, in regulating the feelings, moderating the feelings. Focus on how am I relating to the actual, as you said, the relationships, my goals. And if that's good, the kind of the feelings will put themselves in line too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. I find that kind of pumps me. Well, interrupted. 
One thing, another th part that I was talking about, which is one of my, I mean, we've already hit on it a bit, but another upside to this cognitive view of emotions is that now there becomes a responsibility that you have for your emotional life. I always remember it would be very funny when you'd hear, or you'd see some bully or something, and you'd be like in, in elementary school, middle school, high school, and you'd be like, that guy's, people would be like, well, that person's just like an angry person. Like there would be like, I guess this kind of loss of responsibility, they'd be like, that person just is the way they are, and it's your job to kind of move around them or navigate around them. And that's not bad from your perspective, but from their perspective, it's just, it's fundamentally untrue, right? Because in a sense that they are an angry person or a vengeful person or a mean person, but all of these aspects of themselves are not things they can't control. They're all parts that they're participating in by, by their judgments, by the way they value the world, by the way they think about the world. And so that's the bully, but then that also applies to yourself. So if you have got it's your responsibility to have a good emotional life because the way you think about the world, the judgments you form are up to you. You're the one that can change them, not somebody else can change them. And that really puts the onus on you. And I remember the Stoic metaphor, I think this is Chrysippus, he talks about the, the cylinder versus the cube, right? And the idea is that yeah. if somebody comes along and they push the cylinder and it rolls and they push the cube and it doesn't. And the cylinder rolling, that can be a metaphor for a reaction to the stimulus, the push, right? The cylinder is that person that gets angry. The cube is the person that stays calm. And you say, what was the cause of the anger? What was the cause of the movement? Was it the push? And Chrysippus' response is, it can't be the push because one thing rolled and one thing didn't. It has to be the shape of the object. The shape is the cause, right? So if you're quick to anger, you, you, you have these emotional turmoil I'm not to say you can snap out of it and change it immediately. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of practice. But at the end of the day, it's not the push. It's not the stimulus. It's the shape. And you have a responsibility and an ability to change your shape so that it's able to succeed in the environment you're in and ultimately be the shape you want it to be. And I find that really empowering. I know some people can, I think it's important to recognize that this is hard and this is a long process. I think people can feel like it's a judgy part of stoicism. If this, mm -hmm. You should just be able to control that right away. And that's not what Stoicism says, but what it does say is that this is something that you can work on and you can change over time and you can improve. And I find that really empowering. Build resistance and practice Stoicism with Stoa. Stoa combines the ancient philosophy of Stoicism with meditation in a practical meditation app. It includes hundreds of hours of exercises, lessons, and conversations to help you live a happier life. Here's what our users are saying. I'm new to Stoicism and wanted to dive deeper with guidance. This is it. I love the meditations. I've practiced meditations with other apps, but this just seems to be more impactful. Life changer. With Stoa, you can really get a sense of how to take yourself out of your thoughts and get a sense of how to handle different, difficult situations. Find it available for a free download in the Play Store and App Store. Yeah, the point about how people think about stoicism, stoicism being judges worth returning to, but more directly on this line, there's the psychologist Albert Ellis, who was heavily influenced by the Stoics and created rational emotive behavioral therapy, talks about how often patients would come in and they describe some less than ideal behavior, whether it's say maybe drinking too much or reacting in some way that hurt their loved ones. And quite often, Alice might just ask some 
probing questions about that experience and the patient would respond with some line eventually this it's just how i feel that's why i react in that certain way just because of how i felt and what he would ask as a follow-up is but isn't it also how you think where i found that framing is always very useful because often of course we do find ourselves in situations where we initially react because of some feeling and one can pause and note oh there i actually have some belief if it's in the case of anger about people doing some perceived wrong that needs to be righted and is this belief actually correct and addressing those beliefs is very useful for thinking about things like anger especially yeah totally i like that also how you think and i think coming back to the judgy part or coming back to why i think that person might say it's just how i feel is that often we can feel or often people feel shame for how they feel right so it's like if you're just in this state if you think your emotions aren't something you can control and change, then you feel this kind of shame for who you are. And so I think the first step people take is I shouldn't feel shame for that. That's who I am. I'm going to love myself. And I think that's not a bad move, but you don't want to stop there, right? You want to accept yourself as you are, but you don't want that to be the final step. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I think there's also a separation between the ideas that are useful to apply to oneself and also the ideas or ways one might interact with others. So I think the line, take responsibility for your own emotions is useful to apply to yourself as you're planning and going about your own life. But it is true that it, that very same line can be misused when it's applied to other people, especially in conversation. If you just in insist that the other person take responsibility for the fact that they feel bad and overlook the things that you are doing that is causing them to react in that way. And I feel like um, it's a, a... So there's always a, an additional complication here. Yeah, and I feel like that's such a superficial way of... There's these layers to stoicism, and I think that's like a superficial way that ends up... You see that person, they open stoicism, they start reading stoicism for the first time, and they're like, oh, other people's emotions are their problems. This is great news. Uh, I don't have to feel... I don't have to worry about me causing anything because as Epictetus says, it's nothing I'm doing that's wrong. It's their judgment of me that's wrong. And I'm being a bit like I'm being silly there, but you can stop there. And that's not a great spot to stop in. But yeah, people using stoicism or kind of stoic like thinking or distorting the dichotomy of control to be like, everything you're feeling is your problem. That's your baggage. It's not something I have to deal with. And yeah, not only is it judgy, I think that's a pretty unhealthy way to, re to relate to other people as well. And the reverse mistake is also made, I think, what might be more polite or more caring ways of interacting with others isn't always the same way one should relate to oneself. So I think, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, some, often some people might make the move to self-acceptance when really they shouldn't be accepting whatever is currently bother them and it's better to change it. Yeah, totally. I think a good point here, if it's okay with you, I want to segue into kind of some Greek terms, which is always my favorite. And to get a little bit technical in the Stoic language, because I think it, it will be really helpful and really clarifying. So one thing that I wanted to talk about, so I think this is like a big picture paradigm that we've talked about, which is that your thinking determines how you feel. So A, how you feel gives you information about your thought processes. And B, you should use that information 
to evaluate. Am I thinking the right way? Am I relating to the world in the right way? Am I valuing the right thing? Am I having, am I thinking about things in ways I'd rather not? I'd rather change my perspective. So that's all. And that's a really kind of big picture perspective on the paradigm that stoicism takes towards motion. And I think that's all really helpful. The one thing that's really helpful too is clarifying, getting a little bit technical into the Greek because it can give you, it can really help push the thinking deeper. And so when we use the word Let's emotion, yeah, when we use the word emotion, the Greeks didn't have, they, the Stoics didn't have a word that was encapsulating emotions in the way that we use it. What they were using instead were these subtypes. So they had a distinction between pathe, which you sometimes gets called passions, and eupathe. And so pathe is passions, and then you is, that's the Greek word for good. So one is these emotions or these passions, and then eupathe is the kind of the good version of them, the good feelings. And I think that distinction is really important because we often, the Stoics goal, the Stoic ideal of kind of emotional therapy was to eliminate pathe, was to eliminate passion. But the Stoics were entirely fine with eupathe or good feelings. So we, I think it often gets misrepresented that the Stoic goal was to eliminate all of your feelings. That's not the case. Uh, it's the case is not to become indifferent to, to everything. The goal was to eliminate these, what I sometimes call unhealthy, negative emotions. And what determines if something is a pathe, something is a passion versus a good feeling, is that the pathes were those that were built on false judgments. They were those that the re result of mistaken judgments. Epictetus, I always go back to Epictetus, I think of the example, if someone insults you in public and you think your life is ruined or you think your honor is in question, so you have to slap them across the face and you're, you're super angry about it. These are passions, not just because they can be unpleasant feelings, but they're passions because they're based on mistaken judgment. There's false beliefs underlying them. And it's those that were really dangerous. It was those emotions that, that, that followed from irrational thinking, from incorrect thinking. Not, not all feelings. The Stoics were totally open to other kinds of feelings. And I think sometimes that distinction gets lost. What are your thoughts on that? I suppose what I would add to that is, in a sense, Stoicism isn't even about reducing negative emotion. I think often what people describe as negative emotions are grounded in true beliefs. Take something like remorse for mistakes that one has made in the past or an appropriate level of sadness. I think there's also this point that the framing should always be a little bit more direct. Initially, it might be useful to use the tools of Stoic philosophy to address whatever crisis you might be in. And that may be a matter of many negative feelings and emotions, but the ultimate goal of Stoicism is serving as a life philosophy. And that involves acting well, making good decisions and having correct judgments. I sound like I'm getting a little bit too pre preachy, but <laughs> the general line that I think it can be useful to think a reframe instead of thinking about stoicism as reducing negative emotions to thinking about it as a complete system for acting well. Totally. Because that's... Believing in acting well, I should say. Because that's, uh, that's Epicureanism, right? And like a lot of... I think a lot of modern stoics are Epicureans. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not trying to sit here and also be on a high horse and be like, oh, you're not even real stoics. You're Epicureans. It's some kind of bad thing. I, I think anybody that lives... That's like living intentional, I think is totally on, on the right path. And I think that's great. But Epicureanism is about reducing suffering. And they said, look, if you're a good person, if you think about things the right way, you're going to suffer a lot less. Because as you said, you're going to have a lot less remorse. 
You're going to feel a lot less angry. You're going to have a lot less fear um, and anxiety. You're going to, you're going to have these, you're going to reduce bad feelings that are unpleasurable feelings by being a good person. And I think a lot of people get into stoicism for that reason. They say, look, I want to reduce unpleasurable feelings. But as you point out, Seneca talks about this a lot, right? There's nothing wrong with the appropriate amount of grief, right? There's nothing wrong with, if you allow something like grief to be a life-shattering moment because you didn't accept the possibility that people you care about or life is temporary or things like this. I'm talking about this very big picture. Obviously, these things are difficult to move through. But that's where you run into a problem, right? When it, it starts to go beyond, go beyond its appropriate length and its appropriate intensity. But as you said, like even a, a stoic will feel when something bad happens, an appropriate amount of bad feelings. And yeah, I, I think that's quite, I'm not sure if you're under the same impression. I think that's quite peculiar to some people who are starting to get into stoicism and starting to understand it. Yeah. You, as Seneca said, you may weep, but you must not wail. <laughs> that's a exceptionally useful line for remembering the position. Yeah. And the eupathy, so the kind of good feelings, again, not necessarily good because they're immediately pleasurable, but good because they're based on true judgments. They're like the, they're, you, the result of thinking well or, pro, or relating to the world properly. The, the, the advancing stoic feels a range of these, right? So the, the common example is something like a caution, right? That's a really easy one. Even the sage would feel caution because even the perfect stoic is not going to foolheartedly, they're not going to walk off a cliff and say, death is nothing to me. And they're not going to put their hand in a meat grinder or do these kinds of things. And that's extreme situations. They probably wouldn't even try to insult people or try to make a scene, right? They would display the appropriate amount of caution, the appropriate amount of concern about not doing harmful things. And that's totally, and then that's totally fine. And then you, if you take this into the passion version, so either exaggerated for the wrong reasons, this would be fear or anxiety. So there, there's, I think in one sense, they're based on, their, the passions are based on false judgments. But in another thing, they're, they're also, there is also a intensity difference, or at least false judgments lend themselves to being more intense because you're opening up yourself to unlimited intensity. If you're not, if you're not confined to reality, if you can think whatever you want to think, there's way more opportunities to experience way more unpleasurable feelings about the world. To paraphrase Seneca, you could say passions are that which overleap reason and carry it away. They have some uh, distorting effects on how you see the world, whereas positive emotions or eupathe don't have the same drive to distort one's, one's thinking. Yeah, in a way they can't distort your thinking because they're not distorting, they're not out, they're not wrong with the world, they're corresponding with the world. Yeah, so you're exactly. not pulled in any wrong direction. One thing that I wanted to bring up was this kind of Epictetus part, because you talked about the distorted, the distorting nature of passions. Epictetus was really big on preventing passions from the get-go. So part of his therapeutic program was like, look, passions, if you get angry, it just, you can't even think properly until you calm down. It, it totally changes the way that you interpret new information, that you deal with new situations. So passions have this negative compounding effect. You think something incorrect, you feel a passion, and now you're more likely to make incorrect passion inducing kind of judgments as you go along. And so one of Epictetus's therapeutic things, which I always thought was really smart, 
was to just abstain, just take a step back and go, oh, okay, all these kind of strong judgments that I have about I need to be successful or I need people to like me or I need to I need to have a certain amount of, I don't know, achievement by a certain age or I can't have these things happen to me because they'll ruin my life. We have to just abstain from all those things, take a step back because you can't even start practicing stoicism properly if you're being constantly tossed around by these feelings. But I always thought that was a funny part to his kind of start of philosophy was just like, just work on abstaining from these extreme judgments altogether because you can't even handle them yet. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. It's like a uh, wait before trying the harder stuff or something like that is the general thought. Yeah, totally. Often wise. What are your thoughts? Uh, did on you some... say much about prepathy? Oh no, I'll jump into prepathy. So yeah, so this is another. This is the third of the pathy, which is great. The third one. The third one. So, oh, I think I. It's it is it's like a prepassion. So what this this third category. And this is this idea that we didn't talk much about Stoic psychology. Basic Stoic psychology is that you experience an impression, you deliberate upon that impression. So something happens, you see a snake, you think, you, you deliberate on that vision of a snake. You say that that's a fake snake my friend put out to scare me, so I'm not afraid. Or I'm watching a TV show about snakes, so nothing can hurt me. Or you go, wow, that's actually a real snake in front right. of me. I'm in real danger. And depending on how you deliberate on this impression, you then get a response indifference or fear if it's a real snake, not for the picture. But the stoic view was that there are certain sensations that you'll experience just from confronting certain kinds of impressions. And this can, this, this was related to our animal nature. So animals, they don't have this deliberation. It's input, output. They receive an impression, they experience something. You put food in front of a dog, the dog's hungry, wants the food. And we're still like that with certain things. And the famous example was, it was Seneca, who said even the sage, even the perfect stoic, flinch at thunder, right? And at, and at lightning. There's nothing you can do about it. It's just an animal response that you're going to have to certain kinds of intense impressions. But they were saying the important part there is to not run with it, to not add a judgment to it. You're going to flinch at lightning, but if you go, oh, silly me, it's just lightning. I'm in my house. I'm not, there's no issue here. Then that's going to immediately go away. And so the idea was that like, look, it's okay if certain things disturb you or surprise you immediately. Certain impressions are just going to be this strong. They're just going to have that immediate impression. What you don't want to do is add to it. You don't want to feed into it with unhealthy or incorrect thinking. And that's just the third type that's just interesting because again, it's just, look, there's this degree of forgiveness. You're not the stone. You're not the statue. There's going to be certain kind of fluctuations when extreme things happen. What matters is, okay, how do you respond to those impressions? Do you let them become full passions? Or do you respond to them appropriately? And that's just a, a kind of an interesting third category. I don't know if I experienced too much of that in my own life, these pre-passions. I don't know if, if thunder, I guess you think of a horror movie, right? It's full of that, like jump scares. I don't know how much that, that right. in my life. Good. It's a good third category to think about. I suppose it's useful to think about impressions generally, or mm -hmm. often make the division between feelings and emotions, where feelings are closer to the initial impression and it's emotion that includes the full judgment about the situation. You might feel if someone says something and you think you're insulted, you might have some initial feeling of rage, then you might realize, oh wait, they're, they're, not, they're actually insulting someone else. And that's okay. Your judgment shifts that initial feeling. And I think that's a distinction I've found quite useful for thinking about this sort of thing. And I guess, maybe you can say why you found it useful, but I guess the therapeutic insight would be something like, you don't have to lean into it. You don't, it, just because you felt that way doesn't mean that has to be your emotion. It doesn't have to continue. 
Or what did you find in your own life? What did you find useful about it? So I think it's useful because the focus is less on feelings, which are out of one's control to a large degree, and more on the judgments one is one is making. I think it's just tool or maybe not a tool, but a reminder to return to how you think and not be so concerned about whether you would initially feel a particular way when you do some action. So whether it's nervousness about some initial call that you think you need to make, maybe train myself to not just lean into that initial feeling and said, as the feeling is like giving me any useful information, maybe I need to prepare more or something like that. But that it's not a reason to avoid the call if it's something that I already came to the judgment about it being a good idea. Yeah, I think anxiety is a really good example of that because I think anxiety is or fear or the kind of nervousness because I think that's something that I've really been able to work on training myself to be like, I'll still feel it before I do almost anything. I'll still have that kind of pre-sensation, anything that's like public speaking oriented or in front of people. But I've gotten to this point where I think I'm able to do some stoic therapy myself and be like, well, I'm not going to be harmed in any way. Nothing bad is going to happen. Even the worst case scenario is not going to be something I'll really remember a year or two from now. And that really helps me get out of that spiraling. That's something I use all the time. Yeah, absolutely. That's a useful example. Good example. Yeah. Well, so, so we take all this, we take all this information and we say, okay, so what do we do with it? So how do we have a good emotional life? And then I think there's kind of two aspects of it. One is we already talked about it is there's a preventative aspect. There's a avoiding extreme emotions. And then there's the aspirational aspect. And this, I take a lot from Epictetus because Epictetus is the Stoic that I studied most deeply. But Epictetus' thing is to say, first, you need to do when you're trying to regulate your emotions, you need to be honest with yourself. And I think this is a big problem a lot of people make is they say, oh, dichotomy of control, so it's up to me. So now I can go and I can do this thing that's really hard for me or that is too emotionally difficult for me. It's like, no, it's not the case. You, you have to meet yourself where you are at that point. So one thing Epictetus really talks about is because emotions have this distorting effect, because passions have this distorting effect where they lead to more passions, they lead to negative spiraling. The first thing to do is actually to, what you can control is your environment, right? Take accountability for your environment to the extent that you can and try to remove triggers, remove things that kind of incite these feelings. Get out of this, get out of this negative spiraling. And then when you're out of that negative spiraling, you can start to reintroduce these things carefully and slowly. So I'm trying to think of a, trying to think of an example like this, but I think of something like social anxiety or something as an example, you want to be able to talk to people comfortably. The example is not going to be some major public speaking event or some major social activity. You want to remove yourself from these environments that, that throw you off and you want to slowly reintroduce, try sparking up a conversation with a stranger that you, that you meet, start talking to somebody that you share an interest with or something like this. And you start to gain this confidence talking to people and you do that really slowly. It's this kind of slow exposure method. And I find that really helpful. Another aspect is just this kind of, it's just nerdier, but it has been helpful for me, which is a real clarification of value, a real kind of, so that's the kind of preventative thing. We don't want things to happen. So we, we don't want to feel extreme passion. So we avoid the situations that cause them. And then the other part is this kind of aspirational. We want to think correctly. And so Taking our emotions as information, we start to think, what do I value that's causing this emotional life that I don't necessarily want? 
And are those values I want to hold to? And if they are, accept the feelings that come with them. And if they're not, work on changing them, work on reconceptualizing them. And another is working on minimizing what CBT calls, calls, calls cognitive distortions. So working on minimizing situations where you just think incorrectly, something like catastrophizing. If this happens, it's going to ruin my life or things are never going to be the same or a kind of a distortion of the importance or the significance of things. Another aspect, um, I guess this kind of third tip or third tool is one of focus. And that's a really important one that comes down to the dichotomy of control. The dichotomy of control is this view that some things are up to you, some things aren't, but it's this other picture that you should focus on the things that are up to you. So there's this, when we're doing emotional work, part of that is, yeah, don't think that thing is scary or don't think that bad thing can happen. But another part is just shift your attention elsewhere, right? Try to get into the zone, try to shift your attention onto you, what you're doing in the moment, how you're functioning in the moment. I think athletically, and all these examples to me are sport, but I think athletically that really helped me because if I, once I started thinking just about my performance and I stopped thinking about what other people thought of it, what it meant about how good I was and things like that, I started losing a lot of kind of the anxiety or the fear or the anger or the sadness that came with it. That's the three ones that I think I, I use the most or think about the most. What are your thoughts? Yeah, those are all excellent. Just to add some items to that list, I think mindfulness meditation is useful as a way to internalize or illustrate the cognitive theory of emotion. So by paying careful attention to one's sensations and thoughts, one can clarify how, in fact, how we feel and how we think are often quite separate and some feeling of discomfort might be a constellation of different sensations or thoughts instead of some like, intrinsically bad thing. So that's one item I'd add to your list. Yeah, I think that there's a... It's very exhaustive. <laughs> there's kind of a... An internal literacy. I don't know if there's a better metaphor for that. That mindfulness really helps pull up this kind of idea of, okay, because I've been talking about what's obvious, right? Your thoughts determine your feelings. So just think about your thoughts. But that's not really obvious. And sometimes, as you said, they can be a constellation of thoughts. It can be things that you haven't articulated. It can be things that you don't really have the language for yet. And sitting down and checking into those, spending some time getting familiar with the shape of your mind and your thinking is really a helpful tool yet yeah, to be able to navigate the space successfully. Yeah, it's, I think it's always useful to pick one of these techniques and focus on it for a period of time. For me, I think that's diving back into doing some a simple meditation whenever I've lost a habit or something of that sort. And then down, down the line, add some focus on some additional technique. Totally. approach. Yeah. Whichever one works for you. Think that as the, the point of a toolkit is that you pull the one out that's appropriate, right? And the one that's well suited to your disposition and in your current position. So what I've used has changed over time. I think that's totally. Absolutely. There's so much more to talk about here and we'll definitely open up some more boxes, address some of these questions that we may have dropped a little bit over the course of the series. So thanks so much for listening. Please reach out to us if you have any thoughts or feedback. Yeah, that's it. And you got anything else to add to that, Mike? No, great. I just, as I said, depends on other things you'd like to see us talk about, any sort of feedback, always appreciated. And yeah, great talking to you, Caleb. Super fun. All right. Let's do it again soon. 
Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. If you found this podcast useful, please subscribe, share with a friend, and give us a rating on your podcast player. All of these things are preferred indifference, of course, but each goes a long way in supporting our efforts. And please reach out to us with any feedback or questions. Stoa at stoameditation.com. Until next time.